Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for all who love the scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm Rosie Canethel, Juris Doctorate and Fellow PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University. <laughs> It takes a minute to introduce all three of us for a party episode like this. <laughs> it certainly does. And soon it will take even longer. Yes, that's right, folks. We at First Reading are proud and pleased as punch to announce that Tim McNinch has accepted a position as assistant professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, Indiana. Yay! <laughs> this is so awesome, nice. Tim. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Yay! Oh my goodness! Well, it is a job well earned, and I am so excited for your students, and super excited that you're only going to be a couple hours away. This is this is That's just going right. to be awesome. So, fantastic teacher, and so full of wisdom. Buzzword there, Rachel. <laughs> Was that your attempt at transitioning us to this week's episode? Yeah, it was. <laughs> okay, I'll allow it, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was. It totally was. But here we are, so let's just go with it. The first reading for this week is a mishmash of Proverbs 8, specifically verses 1 through 4 and 22 through 31, a fine text to choose to commemorate Trinity Sunday on June 12, 2022. And we thought it would be appropriate on this Trinity Sunday to have a trinity of hosts to cover this text. So you're getting all three <laughs> nice. of us. Nah, yeah, right. I'm just on fire today. <laughs> you are getting all three of us on a party episode to kick around Proverbs 8. Now, dear listeners, if you've got questions about the figure that is present in this text, woman wisdom, Tim covered her in a little more detail in an episode on June 16th, 2019, and there's a ton of gold there, including a delightful invitation to play with wisdom in your sermon, just as wisdom played at the beginning of creation. Mm, so, little teaser for you there. If you're interested in that little gem, check out the episode on the website. Now, for today, though, since we have more time with this text with our party episode, let's take a minute and set up the context a little bit more, starting with the book of Proverbs itself. Proverbs has several qualities that set it apart from other biblical books. We don't always get that in English translations because it all just kind of sounds like Bible, if you know what I mean. So, hmm. okay, so, you know, if you two were to introduce someone to the book of Proverbs, how would you do it? Hmm. What do you think, Rosie? Right. So, I mean, let's just maybe with the basics, right? Proverbs is one of the, the three books in the wisdom tradition in the Old Testament, the kind of classic ones also being um, Job and Ecclesiastes, right? So there are other books that might fit the bill, right? So my dissertation is on Esther, and it's been um, considered within the wisdom tradition mm -hmm. as well. Mm. But, you know, that wisdom literature often has a focus on education, on parental figures, on um, so, you know, we hear in Proverbs a lot, the address of my child, mm. um, mm -hmm, and so, you know, mm -hmm. sort of anticipation of who that audience is, someone who's younger, who's open, maybe to instruction, it's got a reflective tone. Often, um, the idea behind wisdom literature is um, on the formation of character, right? For, um, and for character specifically for social and professional relationships. Um, 
some things that have been talked about with wisdom literature is that might have been training for court officials um, in the ancient Near East. Um, a lot of the wisdom literature in Proverbs has practical advice for life. It emphasizes experience and observations of life and how that should shape our everyday actions. Um, and there's a sound, right, to Proverbs and a lot of the wisdom literature in that there's like these pithy short sayings yeah. um, that mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. like a cadence to them that supports maybe memorization, repetition, and reflection, all kind of important markers of what we might recognize as wisdom literature and specifically here for Proverbs. Yeah, I think that's important to mention sort of the, that literary form that's in Proverbs. It's sort of like... Many chapters are sort of these strings of one-liners. Well, actually, mm -hmm. two-liners, but <laughs> they because of the parallelism. But um, often they're they're somewhat disconnected. But they're just sort of these, like you say, Rosie, these pithy statements mm -hmm. that are meant to just sort of inform an approach to life. And many of those are proverbs that are shared with other ancient cultures. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is a big chunk of proverbs that is very similar to the the proverbs of how do you say that? Uh, um, bless you. The classic sort of Egyptian, ancient Egyptian mm -hmm. wisdom literature. So this is this is not something that's unique to Jewish scriptures. Right. It's a, a way of looking at the world in a practical way, mm -hmm. of um, getting education to kind of set one up for success in life. Yeah. And that's not the only sort of uh, literary form. In fact, what we're looking at today isn't really that string of one-liners. This this is more like these uh, poetic blocks of text, mm. which are sort of expansions on the concept of wisdom itself, right? Yeah, right. It's true as well of, of Proverbs and of wisdom literature that character, social relationships, professional relationships are always grounded super deeply in one's relationship with God. You know, the most common one that's thrown out there is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, okay, so, you know, we've got, like we said, we've got a microcosm of the book of Proverbs today in Proverbs 8, which is not the one to two liners, but it's the poetic block. So maybe let's let's hear that. And Tim, as our most recent um newly jobbed person. Would you like to yes. do the honors of reading the text? <laughs> sure, why not? Um, all right. Yeah, so I'll read I'll read chapter 8, 1 through 4, and then jump to, uh, what is it, 22 to 31? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and uh, I might as well do it from the uh, JPS translation. Nice. Since I have that out in front of me here. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll, uh, we'll probably get to talk a little bit about the verses we skip over. It is wisdom calling, understanding raising her voice. She takes her stand at the topmost heights, by the wayside, at the crossroads, near the gates at the city entrance. At the entryways, she shouts, O oh men, I call to you. My cry is to all mankind. Oh, simple ones, learn shrewdness. Oh, dullards, instruct your minds. Listen, for I speak noble things. Uprightness comes from my lips. My mouth utters truth. See, I went already past the... I was going to say, <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I just got into it, you know? <laughs> One can't help oneself. I know. Uh, I'm going to jump from eight. Okay. My mouth utters truth. Wickedness is abhorrent to my lips. All my words are just. None of them perverse or crooked. And here comes a big jump to uh, verse 
uh, 22. The Lord created me at the beginning of his course, as the first of his works of old. In the distant past, I was fashioned at the beginning, at the origin of earth. There was still no deep when I was brought forth, no springs rich in water. Before the foundation of the mountains were sunk, before the hills, I was born. He had not yet made earth and fields of the world's first clumps of clay. I was there when he set the heavens into place, when he fixed the horizon upon the deep, when he made the heavens above firm and the fountains of the deep gushed forth, when he assigned the sea its limits so that the waters never transgress his command, when he fixed the foundations of the earth, I was with him as a confidant, a source of delight every day, rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in his inhabited world, finding delight with mankind. Mm. So good. It is so good. I mean, it's so poetic. It's so abundant with imagery. Yeah, it's just fun to listen to. Timmy, you couldn't resist continuing to read. I think that's something that um, when you say imagist, it's so evocative, right? There's something about her voice that is so winsome. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think as I was looking at this text again, I I was drawn in. And Mm. I think that's one thing to just sort of say in the beginning is it starts with this very provocative question. You know, doesn't wisdom call? Doesn't understanding raise her voice, right? I mean, it just, there's can you can you hear this question? Um, can you hear this voice? You know, there's something, there's a yearning there in that opening. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and it's it's worth noting, um, just looking at the JPS here. Oh, and by the way, isn't it odd that the one male in the conversation today <laughs> is the one reading the first person <laughs> poem from Woman Wisdom? Didn't even think I just about thought that. I should yeah, mention either. that. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it interesting that um, the JPS uh, has that first line as a statement? Mm. It is wisdom yeah. calling, mm-hmm. understanding, raising her voice. But the Hebrew starts out with that with interrogative, hello, is it mm. not? It's sort of a rhetorical question. Mm. Like, of course it is, but it's it's putting it out there. Hey, isn't this wisdom? Isn't wisdom calling out? Like, get with it. Respond. You know, take note. Right. Right. And as you say, too, it starts in that third person, right? So it's, it's, um, there is a third voice. Before mm-hmm. we actually can hear from woman wisdom, we hear this third voice that's saying, Hey, like, don't you hear what she's saying? Um, and then we go into her speech, right? How, how better to be introduced than by the creator of the universe? Like, that's, that's your <laughs> introducer. That's the person who's reading your name before you come and give your speech. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing that I thought might be worth looking at, too, is he, here she is, the and the image is over and over underscored that she's in public places, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. here's wisdom. She's um, she's not modest. She's shouting. She's drawing attention yeah. to herself in spaces where people are going to be gathered. So on these high hills along the road, she takes a stand in the crossroads. And the point seems to be made um, that there's nothing hidden or secret about wisdom, She's accessible 
to anyone who will open their ears and heed her call. Which is is so fascinating the way you say that, because often I think when we think about the book of Proverbs or when we think about like life wisdom, especially from a female perspective or a female identifying perspective, the message that we're often given about how to be wise or how to have good character is to be small, to be meek, to be quiet, Mm. to be Mm. gentle, you know, and there's nothing small or quiet or gentle about this woman who is literally shouting at people who are walking past her. I thought there was so much irony in that. Like you're pointing out how that's not a modest, you know, like there's an image of the Christian woman that is, you know, quiet, unassuming, humble, and she is not that. I mean, I was struck (laughs) by like, you should not be in the streets shouting. Yes. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's more like the image of the strange woman, the Mm. foreign woman that we get in Proverbs, who's the antithesis of, you know, the lady of Proverbs 31, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So I was just struck by her brazenness. Like this is one woman who is like, oh, you're not passing me without hearing everything I have to say to you. Right. It does. It makes an interesting contrast with um, the chapter before this is one of those explications of a kind of like an image of a woman, um, the opposite of wisdom, Mm. woman folly or whatever, like Mm. the, the seductress, the adulteress, who is um, hiding around the corner, trying to pull you in secretly. And here, woman wisdom is out in public, um, not hidden at all. Just and and, and it leaves it leaves the the reader, the hearer, with no excuse. Like this isn't secret wisdom. Like mm-hmm. if 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 only I had access to this, I could have success in life. This is like. Hey, if you're not getting this, then you're not paying attention. Yeah, it's on right? you, right? It's on you. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. in the temple, not in the synagogue, but like here on the street. Yeah. Public theology. Hey, theology. nice. Yeah. Yes. And I do think there is something sort of sadly ironic then in the way the lectionary chops up this um, text because there's this buildup. She has a divine introduction exhorting us to listen to her voice. And then there's, you know, kind of this. But let's skip everything she has to say. I know, it's messed up. She actually has to say and just go to where she talks nicely about where she came from and and how God created her. So there's this interesting, I mean, on the one hand, I kind of see it because there's like God at the beginning and then we get to the, the point where she's talking about her relationship with God again. But what God wants us to do is listen to her. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we should spend some time in those those verses that get skipped over in the lectionary. I think we should. Yeah. Right. So like the quote begins in verse four, right? So what she says in the NRSV is to you, O people, I call and my cry is to all that live. But when you look at the Hebrew, there's something much more pointed that's going on. So the, there are two imperatives, uh, both at the front of this verse and then at the end of this verse, uh, which are like kind of deepen this feeling of understand you you people, right? So, and what I'm also struck by is the harshness, you know, also of to you, oh people, it's given in the NRSV, a kind of a more expansive translation, but in the Hebrew, it's men, right? Mm. And and the G- JPS that Tim read as well, it it underscores the idea that this is a male audience that the text assumes. And we might as well just acknowledge mm-hmm. that. 
Can, can I ask you guys something related to that? Because it, that strikes me as well. And just a little Hebrew tidbit. Uh, sometimes we translate Adam as sort of um, gender neutral, like mm-hmm. uh, humankind. And even Anashim um, can be gender inclusive. But the word here is Ishim, mm-hmm. actually like time. males, mm-hmm. <laughs> men specifically. And just with this sort of gendered uh, imagery here, in personifying wisdom as female and the audience as male, how does that impact how we deal with this text? Because we were just reveling in the sort of gender bending, you know, way that woman wisdom is out there in public. Mm -hmm. But it's also sort of setting up this, not only a, um, a binary in general, but one that's patriarchally oriented. No, I mean, I think you're heading into some of my thoughts where there's a lot of body language in here. There's a a lot of emphasis on her femininity, on her attractiveness on something, you know, Mm. like this is wisdom. Look at me. Um, And it's and openly using desire. And I, I was just thinking about this as teachers, all of us in formation as teachers And the use of desire, you know, on some basic level, there's a yearning to learn, you know, that you hope to feed among your students. And something about, um, I I don't know how to work with this, but there's a sexual tension here that the text, I think, openly tries to draw on, right? And Mm -hmm. how do you hold male attention, young male attention? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, is it worth maybe just saying that the text is not um, shy Mm. of that um, being one of the tools that this teacher can use is that she can draw their attention to herself and its attractiveness and that that is an open part of her invitation. Look at me. I am worth having. Mm. Uh, Mm. Take a good look. Take a good listen. You want me to be part of your life just like God did at the beginning, right? So that to me, there's an energy behind our words that is openly sexual. Mm. Mm-hmm. Can you point to a place in the text where you see that, Rosie? Right, right. So when you, I mean, I think the NRSV cleans this up a little bit, mm. like, but if you look closely, there is a lot of erotic uh, focus on her mouth, mm. right? So you see the words lips, mouth, um, and then the openings of her mouth. Like, so, I mean, in the Hebrew, it's quite playful. And there's a playfulness in Proverbs in general, like Tim was hinting at too, that these kind of dual idioms that keep working off of each other. What I feel like, um, Tim, what you're trying to say is like, there's a danger there to having a gendered binary that is drawing on desire present Mm -hmm. in the text because of the way that it can set up our gendered relationships here. But what I hear you doing, Rosie, too, with this like emphasis on the the sensual and on the embodied reality of what she is asking from the listener is I think there's a way you can kind of take the play that she's offering and then take it even a step further. And and what came to mind as, as you were talking for me and as I was reading this was Audre Lorde. Audre Lorde was this fantastic thinker um, in the 1980s, black, queer, um, womanist thinker, um, right when womanism and, and kind of queer theology were really becoming uh, born. And she has this really great article. I, I would recommend it to anybody listening. It's 10 pages. It's super well-written. Like you would just, it's just very, very fun to read, whether you're an academic mm-hmm. or not. It's called Uses of the Erotic, 
the erotic as power. And you used that word, Rosie. And, and erotic for us today, like often gets associated with pornographic or like something mm-hmm. dirty, something wrong. And what Lord is trying to do is in some ways say like, no, 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 no. You're missing the whole point of what erotic actually means or what it is and what it can do. So she has this quote where she defines erotic and I'm going to read it um, in total. It's just a couple of sentences. She says, the very word erotic comes from the Greek word eros, the personification of love in all its aspects, born of chaos and personifying creative power and harmony. So right right away, there's kind of this connection that that links to me between erotic and lady wisdom. You know, we're, we're going to get into it where she talks about how she was born, and she was born before chaos even existed, before the waters, mm. before the Tahome, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So born of chaos, but personifying creative power and harmony. And then she goes on to say this, When I speak of the erotic then, I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of women, in particular here, she says, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives. Like, it's just this wholeness understanding of how, like, you cannot be a whole human being, male, female, or, you know, non-binary without this deep connection to your sensuality, to who you are as an embodied human being. So in my mind, Lord kind of offers us a way out of that binary because it seems less so about like the drawing the male gaze in particular, rather than drawing attention to this, this erotic reality, this being in touch with our deepest inner selves. Now, Right. If we're talking preaching, erotic might not be a word you can use from the pulpit. It might be like with enough prep work or in the right situation, it could be. But these concepts about being in touch with who you are as an embodied, powerful being leads to this kind of wholly embodied experience, which is, it feels like what woman wisdom is asking from us. Like, like, no, don't, don't just listen, but totally experience what's going on here. And you know, what if we were to talk about faith as a wholly embodied experience? We think about it as this ascension, this this thing we assent to so often. But, you know, what better way on Trinity Sunday, which is this super heady doctrine, to not try to <laughs> doctrine talk in your sermon, but instead talk about faith as a as a deeply embodied experience. And I feel like that's one of the things that Lady Wisdom here is offering to us. I find that really helpful and and a powerful way to talk about the dynamic that's going on in the text. Mm. I think um, like the historical critic in me uh, still lands on there's there's um, something challenging and, and perhaps problematic in the framing mm. of this text in its own context. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what you've been talking about, Rachel, gives us some language to kind of translate the metaphor mm-hmm. into something that is still faithful to the text itself but kind of elevates it to another level, one where we're not just dealing with sort of gendered attraction mm-hmm. and more about this deeply human sense of desire that um, is powerful and rooted in just like what it means to be human and um, maybe even into the fabric of createdness itself, yeah. which is actually where the text goes, right? And when it eventually talks about wisdom as a part of like the 
the force that's embedded in creation itself. Yeah. I think one thing you're also reminding me too is at the at its base, preaching is a passionate enterprise, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's you love the text, you love the people that you're with, ideally, you know, you (laughs) love God and out of that you preach, right? And and woman wisdom does that here, right? So out of this relationship, she speaks, she knows of what she speaks, right? And so, and that is what makes her so brazen um, and so confident about what she can model, embody, share, you know, and so I think at its base, it reminds me of what preaching can be. Yeah. Full of fire, full of passion. Not and and again, she restores to me the image of what a righteous life can really look like. Not this dry, stale, boring morality, mm-hmm. you know, that's just sort of um drained of all passion, but she brings the blood back into it, right? Yes. Like that living a righteous life is one that is has real ethical stakes you know, has, has real passionate commitments behind it. And, and that to me, that that's an attractive picture of living a faithful life, you know? Yes. A hundred percent. Well, and, and maybe one of the ways that we get out of the gendered binary is, is, uh, and I have, I have multiple thoughts on this, but there is a sense which is calling her lady wisdom or woman wisdom is like really identifying that, that gendered aspect. What if we called a preacher wisdom instead? You know, I mean, mm. what if she is the ultimate preacher in, and she is, she literally is the ultimate preacher in this text. So, right. And Ecclesiastes, right? Kahelet is the Hebrew word for preacher. Yeah. So, right. Right. Yeah. So you're bringing it back home and that, you know, like the wisdom tradition is sort of based on great preaching. Um, these pithy statements that people hopefully will continue to talk about, discuss, break down in their own communities, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the hope of every great sermon is that, you know, folks will take that home, work it out in their own lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth also um, jumping on that uh, working it out sort of language, because uh, the other sort of factor of Proverbs as a part of the wisdom tradition is that um, we have set up in this passage and throughout the book of Proverbs kind of this um, two ways to live kind of Mm. um, rubric. And um, this text is calling the hearers to pursue the the wise path, the one that, that participates in that creative energy for a successful life. And uh, Rosie, you brought up Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. There's this um, the other parts of the wisdom tradition that there's some tension there mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. whether um, success in life is so clear cut as it's sometimes laid out to be in Proverbs. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I um, maybe this is a, a early preaching pitfall. Yeah. But just to to toss in here that um, as much as we are, uh, all three of us are really getting into the generative potential of this text, to also remember, as, as you out there are preparing sermons, that this is participating in a wider conversation in the Bible about wisdom that is not just about, you know, pick this path over that path, but has some complexity to it that you can incorporate into your sermons as well. I think that's a really great point, Tim. And I think you drawing in the word path is is really essential because that word is is all over the book of Proverbs. And in fact, God introduces her that she's on the heights uh, beside the path. And then mm-hmm. um, later on, she will talk about how God created her as kind of the first step on God's own path or brought her forth or acquired her or, you know, we're going to talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but I, I think that word path 
is is worth um, using as a metaphor in a sermon as well. You know, if you if you identify woman wisdom, lady wisdom here as preacher w- wisdom, then what does it look like to live a preached life, or or what does it look like to walk the preached path? You know, if if preaching is is living faith with your whole body, you know, I think there's a way you could really just play with that and have a fun image to to draw on. But but let's talk a little bit a little bit about that um you know verse 22 if we if we jump now let's talk a little bit about where she introduces her relationship with God from the very beginning. Um Tim 3 years ago you did a really nice bit on kanani this Hebrew word in verse 22 which I'm sure mm-hmm. you've memorized and can just spit <laughs> right out at a moment's notice but uh, let me set you up a little bit here. The NRSV translates this word as created me. So the verse reads, the Lord created me at the beginning of his work in verse 22. Mm -hmm. The NIV translates it as brought me forth. So the verse reads, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works in verse 22 NIV. But you argued three years ago that neither of those really fit the bill. Could you just give a like a spitball of, of what you see here in the Hebrew and why that's important? Sure. I mean, it's maybe a good good moment for a little Hebrew lesson, right? So hey, yeah. the the root there, kana, is one that that comes up a lot, and it's different from some of the other words used for creating things. Right. Um, you know, bara is is a divine creation word. Asa is to make or to shape. But this is kana, which is a little different, and um, it, it um, it's worth saying that create is within the the sort of realm of possibilities for meaning here. So I'm, I wouldn't want to rule that out, but there's some other possibilities. Um, it can mean to, uh, to purchase yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. In fact, in modern Hebrew, that's the, that's the term that's been borrowed into modern Hebrew for, for purchasing things. Mm. Um, but also just generally to, to get um, and that's that's sort of the general sense that I get when I'm reading it here in verse 22, because in the book of Proverbs it comes up um, in talking the 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 parent is often counseling the child get wisdom at all costs whatever you need to do get this wisdom and it's that same word kana get and and so there's a there's an acquisitive. Uh, sense that maybe here in verse 22 as well, that just as wisdom is worth getting for the reader here, uh, God got wisdom at the beginning. Mm-hmm. This was this was something that was desirable even to God to get from the very beginning. Yeah. So, so Adonai Kanani, God got me at the beginning, Dracho, of the beginning of God's own path. Yeah. So God is on a path, and the first step of God's path is to get wisdom. I think that's a really, um, you know, there's there's some some room for running with that and preaching a little bit. Um, if you're thinking about a, a way of understanding the Lord created me at the beginning of his course, God got me at the beginning as the first step of God's own path. That's super interesting. Yeah. What I think about that verb, what I think about is the way that Eve talks about how she first brought forth ah, Cain. Yes. Ah, it's the nice. same verb, right? Nice. So Cain's mm-hmm. name is is from Kina, and it's from also how she describes the process of having gotten this child from God. Right? And I, I remember when I first learned Hebrew, we were doing Genesis, mm-hmm. and sitting there with that and thinking, what does she mean by this? Does she mean she 
purchased him, bought him, got him off of, how did she get him off of God? How does she conceive of having this child, you know, and that, and that goes into his name. And so you're reminding me there of, again, another like woman trying to describe, you know, how she procreates, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great, that's a great spot to jump back to because that could be sort of a creative language with God's help. I've created a man, Mm -hmm. but it's also a, a sense of acquisition, yeah. Um, God helped me to get a new person. Like, yeah. So I've I've acquired a man with with God's help, which is really interesting there. And it's it's a playful etymology because you know, Cain is is comes from spear. So spear. That's right. probably the actual <laughs> etymology right. there. But the author of Genesis is playing with that. Yeah. Uh, that sense of getting of acquiring. Uh, in in the context of trying to playfully explain the origin of that name. I taught a class this semester, Feminist Biblical Interpretation, which is where we read Audre Lorde, and um, we did a ton of uh, what's called queer biblical interpretation. And if you're not familiar, dear listeners, with that, what queer biblical interpretation does is um, it's often done by people who identify as queer, but not necessarily. What it does is kind of like play with the text and not in a... Um, not in a way that doesn't have integrity, but in a way that says like, what are the realm of possibilities within this text itself? And and what might we do with that? And I think having that lens looking at uh, preacher wisdom here, if you will, is kind of fun because she's sort of like playing with God, even at this very beginning. She's sort of like, using God as her divine microphone and then saying like, look, I'm so fantastic that God was the first thing he got when he decided to step on this path. There's just some really fun playfulness that's going on um, with woman wisdom here. Oh, it's great. And I'm, I'm just looking ahead to um, verse verse 30 and 31. Yeah. Um, that the verb that's there, the participle, mesachet, that's the, the verb to play. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Yeah, it it's is. It's translated yeah. re- rejoicing, well, but it's so, playing. Yeah, it's plain, but it's also it's also linked to the word laughter and and mm-hmm. mockery. So there's a there's an ambiguity or there's like a knife's edge with that word where when you look it up in the Hebrew Bible, um it shows up often as kind of this delightful play or delightful laughter, but it also is this sort of mocking play or mocking laughter. So right at this point, verse 31 where that word occurs, we're about to really tip into the main portion of the chapter because uh, verse 32 starts with v'ata, which is that word that's like signaling in Hebrew, v'ata, hey now, listen up, we're about to get to the meat. Yeah. Having <laughs> said all that, right. here we go. Here we go, yeah. right. That having that word, mesacheket, kind of like lifts up the fact that there's high stakes in what's about to come. Like this isn't just about play. This isn't just about joy, but there's there's some pretty high stakes to what, you know, preacher wisdom has to say. And if I could say a word for play, I mean, it doesn't have to be a binary against work, right? So I mean, yes. one thing that I think woman wisdom reminds us of is the deep play that is inherent to good work. Nice. You know, and so, I mean, that is one thing that I, f- I find I need to be reminded of in American culture too, where work can kind of just, you know, be another dry, boring, stale enterprise, but work at its core, work that she's describing here, the work of creation is is born out of that eros, that mm. playfulness, that delight, mm. you know, and, and great preaching, I think, comes often when preachers mark their delight in the text and in their relationship and, you know, in the people that they're serving. And that is where, you know, congregation really 
can get energized. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful because that's also lifting up another word that is in both of these uh, verses. In verse um, 30 and 31, we have a really fun word to say. It's sha'ashu'im. (laughs) (laughs) And sha'ashu'im is um, translated here as delight. And if you look it up in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't occur that often, but it almost always refers to human delight in God and God's ways, or conversely, God's delight in God's people. Um, a couple of times it's it's used to uh, talk about what little kids do, how they play, or conversely are played with. But even those instances, Isaiah 66 and Jeremiah 31, they occur in the context of this metaphor for how God relates to God's people or how God's people relate to God. So when you think about this, like right before we listen, right before we get tipped into that v'ata, right before we talk about this, this work that is at its core delightful, we have this word that is a metaphor for this life-giving delight that is at the core of essential relationships, whether it's a, a relationship between a parent and a child, perhaps one that is graduating um, soonly, or um, mm-hmm. one that has just recently been born. Um, but this this life-giving delight that is the, at the core of essential relationships. So, you know, it's just this grand buildup to, to kind of what Lady Wisdom wants us to take away here. So how are we gonna how are we gonna preach this though? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've been so in, intrigued by our <laughs> conversation so far. We've brought out so many really interesting sort of exegetical bits and pieces here, and a framework for understanding the passage as a whole. Um, but what is this? What sort of call is here for a for a congregation? Is there a connection to Trinity Sunday even? Like, what 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 sorts of uh, ways do we want to bring this out in sermons? That was my immediate thought was Trinity Sunday, right? Mm. So, I mean, one thing, the mystery of the Trinitarian relationship, um, rather than it being, um, I mean, it is doctrinally, there's something to be said, but at its base, it's one, like the one that wisdom is talking about is based in love and exchange, a, a mutual exchange of love, a delightfulness, you know, that is at the center of, you know, shared power um, and shared creativeness, shared inventiveness, shared delight, you know, and so in that Trinitarian relationship, I, I think is something that's a reminder of how we might be with one another too, is that at the, at the base of our relationship with God is, is not just a, you know, one-sided exchange, but there's a duality. There's a, that God loves us, delights in us, that we also love God, delight in God, that we love one another, you know, in the same way that the Trinity rejoices and loves each other. I mean, there's some there's something here that just reminds me of that um, kind of basic property mm. of, of the Trinity. Mm. Mm-hmm. Kind of mutuality. Yeah, that deep, Rahner talks about this, right? I mean, it's a kind of very erotic language too for the passion that's between the three. Well, and I think I think that's where you know that's that's where my preaching mind went. Is um, there are certain church words that become like uh, you watch Ted Lasso? They talk about semantic satiation uh-huh. when a word you say it so often oh, yeah, it loses yeah, right. its meaning. For Ted Lasso, it was plan, 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 um, plan. But I do plan. think the word love can and has done that in churches. Like, you know, God loves you. We should love each other. Like, it's just kind of one of those words that gets thrown around all the time. It's always the answer to the children's sermon. If the 
pastor ever asks a question, Jesus loves you. So what, like, what Lady Wisdom, Preacher Wisdom does here is like grabs us by the back of the neck and turns our attentions is like, look at this thing. Like, look at what love is. Look at it. It is it is full. It is embodied. It is sensual. It is from the beginning of time. It is something that makes God laugh. Like, like give love, you know, legs and a body and an experience and use Trinity Sunday to enflesh the experience of faith and, and inspire people like you were talking about. You know, what is the sermon that is in your guts that that is going to bring the blood back into what you want or what you want your people to be doing? And I think that's the that's the opportunity that I see here is, is that really enfleshed faith and and embodied love experience that you can give to people almost instead of just telling them about. Yeah, I think that's that's really helpful. Uh, one of my preaching pitfalls around this text is, and and my suspicion about why it's included in the lectionary at this point, right. <laughs> is that is the tradition of making a sort of connection between this figure of wisdom and this and the sort of pre-existent second person of the Trinity uh, in Jesus. <laughs> the answer to every Jesus children's was the son of Mary, <laughs> right? Right. And and so um, my my uh, preaching pitfall would be. Uh, don't flatten it out in a yeah. sermon to, and here we have in the Old Testament uh, an old sort of um, prophetic poem that points ahead to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, yes. whom we celebrate on Trinity Sunday. Amen. I mean, there are ways to um, you know get at some of the mystery that's embedded in that kind of a concept, but what I find here is more of an exploration of just the the nature of of God. Um, in, in the kinds of terms that Rosie was talk, talking about just a minute ago, of that that mutuality is a part of the divine nature uh, at its root and something that can be celebrated and mysteriously participated in um, by getting wisdom. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think the only other preaching angle that I have is not mine, but it's Rosie's. Um, so I'll t- toss it to you, Rosie, but how you were talking about like the delight that is at the core of work. Like, I feel like there mm. is something there to be preached. Yeah. I, I think that I certainly could remind, remember that too, is, you know, like the text talks about this master worker, but it also has this childlike playfulness. I'd like to return to that as well as, uh, you know, a lightness to the work mm-hmm. of writing a dissertation. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. But at its core, I mean, do you remember? I, th- I feel like we need to remind ourselves of of the fun of, of working out a vocation, that that is where God rejoices, that that is where God plays. Yeah. And that in the midst of our congregations, you know, when, you know, those moments of worship, when folks are just lost, you know, and it's just, it happens so rarely, but when everyone is in it, it's unmistakable. Yeah. The spirit that's in the midst of that. This first Sunday after Pentecost, right? Maybe just a reminder <laughs> that this, yeah, that that image is there and it's ordinary time. Sure. That's what we're entering into. But we we carry that fire of Pentecost yeah. into ordinary time, you know. And, and sermon title, sermon title. Let's make ordinary time extraordinary. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! Yeah. I, I might actually, if I were preaching this text, um, kind of harp a little bit on that term mesachet, and um, I would probably push it as 
preachers sometimes can towards one particular um, nuance of its wide-ranging meaning. And I would probably play up the playfulness of that term and maybe translate it as, as playing and playfulness and, and emphasize the, an invitation to playful spirituality mm. in, in contrast to the sort of staid, um, uh, hesitant, fearful, like, here's wisdom, choose the right path, don't make a misstep, don't make a mistake. But instead, there's, a, there's an invitation to a mutuality with God that is playful and in, invites experimentation and kind of working this out along life's path. Yeah. And so I, I hear this poem as uh, not so much a warning, but as an invitation into a kind of life. Yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing that would preach well, especially in church contexts where people are kind of conditioned to see religion, in air quotes, as this thing that is um, restrictive mm, in their yeah. lives. I think there's an invitation here to an expansive, playful life of relationship with God. Nice. I love it. Oh, well, I think that sounds like a fantastic place to end it. Uh, Tim, <laughs> Rosie, thanks for your work on this week's episode. It is always fun to kick around a text together. That's right. It's a party. I love the party. <laughs> well, remember, friends, all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources and your very own First Reading swag on the merchandise page. Page, page. I've got semantic satiation there. Merchandise page. <laughs> If you're on Facebook, you can also find us there and give us some feedback in the comments. A special thank you to those who generously choose to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. Thanks also to our very own Tim McNinch and Blue Dot Sessions for our music and to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us out. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rosie Canethal. Have a great week. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Chorus of screaming chickens. I uh, know, we should have that more often. <laughs>